Hello, my name is Marielle Harris, and I'm one of the producers for 49. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in September 2021 before Judd Devermont departed the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's the episode. Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Ouellette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Rwanda, and we are joined by Mbemba Dizolele, Africa Senior Advisor at the International Republican Institute, a lecturer in African Studies at the John Hopkins School, and a CSIS Senior Associate. Nicole, can you tell us a little about the history of U.S. policy towards Rwanda? In 1960, U.S. policy towards Rwanda was to encourage the Belgians to fulfill their obligation as a trustee for Rwanda-Urundi by improving economic conditions in that area and preparing for it with eventual self-government or independence, preferably with ties to Belgium, according to a National Security Council document. The United States appointed its first ambassador to Kigali in 1963, a year after the country's independence. U.S. diplomats paid attention to the tensions between the minority Tutsi and majority Hutu ethnic groups, especially in the aftermath of the Hutu Revolution in 1959, which was supported by the Belgians and forced as many as 300,000 Tutsi to free to Burundi, Congo, Tanzania, and Uganda. A former U.S. ambassador said the United States didn't have very much to do in Rwanda, although, quote, Rwanda does have a vote in the United Nations, and they do sell an awful lot of coffee to Folgers, end quote. The Rwandans and some U.S. diplomats were frustrated with the meager level of U.S. assistance. One former ambassador asked Washington why Tanzania, which never voted with the United States, received so much, why Rwanda, which consistently went along with the United States, got so little. In 1972, there were ethnic massacres of hundreds of thousands of Hutu orchestrated by the Tutsi-dominated government in neighboring Burundi. U.S. diplomats were concerned about the situation in Burundi replicating itself in Rwanda. This spurred the United States to establish a modest USAID program and Peace Corps. While there is no immediate spillover from Burundi, the following year, Rwanda's Hutu-led government started to whip up anti-Tutsi sentiment and there were incidents of ethnic killings. A few months later, Army Chief of Staff Juvenal Habyarimana seized power in a coup. U.S. diplomats were largely favorably disposed, calling him and his government progressive and, quote, relatively humane and relatively clean, end quote. On February 1st, 1990, the Rwandan Patriotic Front invaded Rwanda. The RPF was led by Fred Wingema and Paul Kagame, both refugees from the 1959 revolution, who had fought with Yoweri Museveni's Ugandan rebels and later served in the Museveni government in Kampala in the late 1980s. Wingema died on the second day of the Rwandan Civil War, resulting in Kagame's elevation as the group's leader. The United States was initially more preoccupied with Rwanda's democratic opening and Harry Amano's commitment to have multi-party elections. As the violence started to escalate, the United States supported the peace process. The embassy's deputy chief of mission was an observer to the Arusha Accords between the government and the RPF in 1993, and the ambassador worked on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis to get all sides to implement the peace process. 
Hutu hardliners, however, were unhappy with Harvey Irmana's concessions to the RPF. There was a surge of hate speech directed at the Tutsi population, and the downing of Harbi Armana's plane on April 6, 1994, served as the trigger for the Rwandan genocide. Washington ordered the U.S. Embassy to evacuate. Even though between 500,000 and a million Rwandans were killed, the United States government avoided action and shunned the word genocide. It also removed UN peacekeepers and blocked subsequent efforts to authorize UN reinforcements. In 1998, President Clinton traveled to Kigali to apologize, and several subsequent administrations have issued statements to commemorate the genocide. As the violence spiraled, the RPF rushed to the capital to assume control. A transitional government with Hutu and Tutsi leaders was established. Kagame became the vice president, even though he was the leading voice in government. Ensconced in power, Kagame was alarmed by the number of genocidaires in eastern Zaire, and he told Washington that, quote, if you're not able to help me, I'm prepared to do something myself. And what would become a recurring pattern, Rwanda sponsored Congolese rebels to address what Kagame saw as a threat to his country. In 1996, he tapped Laurent Kabila to overthrow Mobutu, while RPF forces hunted down genocidaires in Zaire and dismantled refugee camps. Kagame and Kabila fell out in 1998, which led to the Second Congo War and some 6 million deaths. The Rwandan government backed Congolese Tutsi rebels in 2006 and 2012 to go after the FDLR, which traced its origins back to the Hutu genocidaires. The U.S. government lauded Kagame as one of Africa's new generation of leaders. His government's economic and development achievements impressed multiple administrations, earning him several visits to the White House under President Bush and a meeting with President Trump at Davos. He was also instrumental in establishment of the Continental Free Trade Area Agreement during his African Union chairmanship in 2018 and 19. Rwanda, however, has not escaped criticism for human rights abuses and its meddling in Congo. Recent deaths of dissidents in South Africa and Mozambique and the arrest of Paul Rusabagina, portrayed by Don Cheadle in the film Hotel Rwanda, have been consistent strains on U.S. ties with Rwanda, creating deep divisions within the U.S. government over the future of the bilateral relationship. Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure in Rwanda? I want to talk a little bit about what happened with M23, because I think it's an example of focused effort by the U.S. government to address a security threat in Congo by also recognizing the other things that Rwanda does that are important. And after the Rwandans started to back this group of Congolese rebels, and there was deep concerns reported by the U.N. and others about what the instability it would cause, the U.S. started to ratchet up pressure on Rwanda to pull back. The U.S. had already supported the creation of the Forces Intervention Brigade, which was a part of the U.N. Different organizations threatened to pull back support for Rwanda. And because Rwanda, unlike some other countries in sub-Saharan Africa, really cares about its international image, Kagame ultimately decided to pull back support for the M23. The FIB defeated the group and they were quickly vanquished. And these debates within the U.S. government were really quite intense because of all of the other things that Nicole has talked about. But here was a discreet effort to address a security problem in the Congo, applying pressure that actually worked. And I think it's a blueprint for some of these other challenges that we'll talk about in this episode. So Mvemba, what do you think the Biden administration's strategy towards Rwanda should be? Like we said the other time with the DRC, the engagement needs to be continued. It would be sustained. In other words, these are country that are in transition, even though it's been over 20 years after the genocide, the transition is still ongoing. So they need to be engaged with. That doesn't mean we turn a blind eye, the U.S. look the other way. Continue engaging with them using carrot and stick. Where it's time to club somebody over the head, then should be doing that. But that should never be at the expense of the transition that we hope sooner or later will yield fruit 
put the country at an optimal point, a country like Rwanda, where maybe they will adopt a little bit of what Burundi does. In other words, Burundi is not in denial of their problems, but their differences. Burundi has a similar makeup as Rwanda, with Tutsi minority and Hutu majority, but they're always struggling to find the just balance. Rwanda is not particularly done that. Rwanda is taking a different approach. We are all Rwandans. There is no Hutu, there is no Tutsi, but that has not particularly been convincing to a lot of Rwandans. So it's just a question of time before that problem comes back. The country is held now by a very efficient leader, which is Paul Kagame. People can judge him however they want in terms of morality or whatever, or the way that, but he's held the country together. But that's the strength of one person, the vision of one man. Sooner or later, the man may no longer be there. What happens to the country? So I think U.S. policy, the Biden policy, administration policy should be one of constructive engagement. So, Nicole, how do we do that? How do we sort of deal with some of the problems of this regime at the same time trying to protect some of the things that are working? I think it's a really important question and one that applies in Rwanda, but also more broadly in terms of U.S. foreign policy. I don't know how many times we have to learn that supporting a big man leader can go wrong, but it is something that we surely need to talk about inside the U.S. government. So as you guys have said, you can honor a nation's history and achievements, even acknowledge major mistakes in that story without endorsing its flaws at present. And of course, there have been extraordinary advances, particularly when you think about the health sector with the economy, tech. And those are all things that I think have been well lauded, right? I don't think we have a dearth of acknowledgement by U.S. officials that Rwanda has done some extraordinary things, and they have done them under Kagame with a lot of other really innovative Rwandans involved. But you know, that doesn't make transnational repression okay. It doesn't make human rights abuses at home. We can hold both things in our hands as we do with many other countries. You know, this we are all Rwandans approach reminds me of the idea of colorblindness in the 80s and 90s in the United States, where this sort of idea that if you just sweep everything under the rug and have a unity speech that no one will notice that there are structural inequalities at play. So as the interagency comes together on this, you know, it's a reckoning inside the U.S. government too. I think this is very much about how you bring the interagency together. You acknowledge on the table that there are a lot of different stakeholders involved, right? There are security cooperation issues with DOD. There is assistance that has been going on for a really long time through USAID, a lot of which has been quite successful. You have the State Department, which really wants to engage with Kagame on all manner of regional issues, right? So there's no interest in sort of shutting that door. But I think there do have to be really honest conversations about contingency planning on beginning to really talk about some of this stuff and not having a blind eye. I mean, you know, we have some of these conversations about Saudi Arabia. We can certainly have them about Rwanda. It's not that it's too complex for the U.S. government to wrestle with. At the working level of the U.S. government, where there has been, among some Africa policy washers, long frustration around this issue, there is room to come up with some new recommendations about how to start a more real conversation, a more frank conversation with Rwandans, and to talk to allies about that, to work in advance to help those in danger get out via civil society protections or to provide additional protections in country, to talk with civil society about the best way to approach this because you don't want to come screaming in with the critique that puts a lot of folks in danger. But at the same time, this needs to happen. So this is really about planning, 
making contingencies for what it's going to mean when we start doing this, because it will be a shift in policy. Continuing to ignore it does not stand up for the ideals we hold in other parts of the continent, let alone other parts of the world. And I really do hope that this administration, which has talked a lot about putting human rights at the center, can find a way to take this up without feeling that they can't acknowledge where there has been positivity. And I think there's a lot of smart people in government who can assist with that. So Mvemba, before we talk about the NBA and J. Cole, can you talk about one big idea to put on the table, creative approaches about how we begin to reset this relationship in a way that is a lot more candid? Rwanda's major problem with the world now has been the DRC, right? It's uh, the DRC. The DRC is actually Rwanda's largest trading partner. Rwanda does not always acknowledge it. But I think that relationship has been at a standstill, even though there's a rapprochement between President Chisekedi and President Kagame for those countries to really reestablish the relationship so they're fully functional, no longer about militias and country militias and all that. For that to happen, though, we need to have a tribunal. In other words, there needs to be some type of reconciliation between the two countries. And the reconciliation is not between two leaders, but between the two nations. This will require that there be an international tribunal on DRC. This will be helpful to DRC internally, for their own judging of their own militias and people that foreign troops have, uh, foreign countries have supported. But it will be very helpful in advancing the relationship between Rwanda and DRC. Because until that happens, that relation will not be working well. You know, at this point, Rwanda flies to Kinshasa, flies to Lubumbashi. I think it will start to be flying to Lubumbashi soon, which is great. But the relationship is one that is very tepid because the Congolese people are not really embracing of that. Rwanda has a lot of ideas. And I think Rwanda can benefit tremendously from good commercial relationship with DRC, but it's not going to work if the Congolese still see the Rwandan as the aggressors. So that's one idea where I think the West can help the two countries move forward. All right, Vemba, Nicole stole my thunder. So now everyone knows what I'm about to ask you. Nonetheless, the NBA's Africa Basketball League debuted in Rwanda this year, and the country's team features rapper J. Cole. What does this tell us about Rwanda and its global ambitions? Thank you, Jad. I think Rwanda has always been very ambitious. They've made that clear. They've done well on many fronts. We saw this with the soccer teams, you know, visit Rwanda, the entire campaign that they run. And I think with the NBA is something similar. They want to really use the comparative advantage, which is Kigali. You know, it's a nice town where they've built a good infrastructure. They're trying to project that. They should continue to push for it. I think it's good for African countries to have this kind of tournament, this talent somewhere in Africa. Any other country could have done it. They did not do it. So the Rwandan decided they would jump on it. Kudos to them. But I think this also, because there's such a thing as sports diplomacy, that investors in these kind of things, the athletes themselves, should become the voice of the downtrodden, try to speak about human rights, to speak about the values that the world share, so that we all will be comfortable to be in Rwanda to participate. It should not be something that people are reticent to participate in. And I think that pressure can only come from activists or advocates and from the athletes themselves. Athletes have been good at doing this. We've seen this in the U.S. with Black Lives Matter and other campaigns. They should be able to do that on Rwanda as well, not to take the game away from Rwanda, but to push for changes in Rwanda. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.